Thank you so much for joining us. This is Classical Crossroads, and I'm Dr. Angel Adams-Param, professor at the University of Virginia. And it is my honor to be joined today by Dr. Joseph Clare with us. And I wanna give you a little bit of background on him. He is a native Oregonian. Um, he followed his educational pursuit all over the world and earned degrees in both England and the United States. He became professor of theology and philosophy and now Dean at George Fox University after receiving his doctorate in religion, ethics, and politics from Princeton University in 2013. He earned his bachelor's degree at Wheaton College, a master's in theological studies from Duke, a master's in philosophy at Fordham, and a master's in philosophy of religion from Cambridge, where he studied as a Gates Cambridge scholar. He is the author of Discerning the Good in the Letters and Sermons of Augustine, Oxford University Press, 2016, and On Education, Formation, Citizenship, and the Lost Purpose of Learning, Bloomsbury 2017, along with numerous articles and essays on faith, culture, education, and ethics. In his spare time, he likes to spend time with his wife, Nora, play with his four kids, fly fish Oregon's mini rivers, and work on his hobby farm. It sounds like, you know, the kind of the beautiful life of the, um, of the mind and of the country. So um, just a wonderful combination there. Uh, so I'm actually going to start with a, an off script question. What do you grow on this farm? <laughs> what do I grow? That's good. Oh, thank you, um, Angel. It's a pleasure to be here and to be part of this podcast. I so believe in the mission um, of classical Christian education, what you're doing, what the press is doing. So here we go. Yeah, we grow. We've grown many things, um, including raising animals. We've raised pigs. We have goats. We've done a lot of chickens for eggs and meat. But right now it's all about flowers. My wife is like a a flower wizard, crazy flower lady, and she cuts these and sells these and arranges them. And um, in fact, tomorrow morning, we're going to dig up all the dahlias. They're, they're tubers. And so you have to like cut them and store them and reuse them. And so tomorrow's dahlia digging morning on the Claire farm. That's amazing. And, and it, it, it's so far away from my own sadly brown thumb. Um, <laughs> brown in two senses. One, it is actually brown. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but brown in the sadder sense of the plants do not flourish. So yeah, <laughs> we are grateful for people like you where they do flourish. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your own educational background and how you came to be interested in Augustine? Yeah, I kind of backed into classical education through Augustine. So I was, you know, public school, K-12, mostly raised here in the Northwest, um, raised by, you know, hippies who turned into yuppies, had kind of a, a wild uh, Oregon education, um, didn't come to faith really until high school. And it was through my faith um, that I started kind of an alternate education of the scriptures in high school. I did love learning. I did well um, in in school. Um, I was a little bit of a, a ragtag skateboarder, uh, pot smoking kid, and then came to Christ and immersed myself in scriptures. And I went to State University and had my first real crisis of faith when I was a freshman where I took a religion class on you know, his, it was on a historical critical reading of the Bible, very skeptical, can't take the supernatural historical stuff seriously. And I just had not encountered those questions in my kind of evangelical subculture. And although it was a crisis and almost shipwreck, it turned into a gift that set me out on this voyage of faith and learning and the intellectual, you know, the journey of the mind toward God, if there is such a thing. And, and, um, transferred from State University to Wheaton College, my alma mater, which I love, and learned about faith and learning how we can bring Christian faith and see how it casts light on all the different realms and fields of knowledge. Like there's no area of human inquiry in nature or culture, um, which we can't bring our faith. And, and, and by beginning in faith and seeking understanding, we actually can get advance um, on some of those areas of knowledge. So that was kind of like a renaissance of faith and learning where I kind of retroactively stitched together uh, my love of learning. Um, 
and my faith in Jesus Christ. I also encountered the tradition there. So although I didn't take a um, intro class where we read Augustine's Confessions, I was on um, I was on a coffee break, you know, as an undergrad at Borders, if you can remember Borders books back in the day. And I was just looking through the theology shelf and I saw Augustine's Confessions. And this is like 2000, 2001, date myself a little bit. And that book was for me what I can only describe as a second conversion where I saw embodied in the life of a human being, Augustine, this like just relentless um, pursuit of God and the truth at the same time, learning and that they were not incompatible. Ultimately, there was no question that was too big to bring, you know, before um, the triune Lord. And it was um, an experience that kind of, um, I think, set it, it set me on the course of my vocation, I would say, as a teacher um, and as a leader in education and what I found in him as a friend, although dead, he's been kind of a mentor through his written um, mm. works, which has been a really special uh, experience. I also had the great opportunity to study him for a long time in graduate school and read a lot of his stuff, although not all of his stuff, as Prosper of Aquitaine said, if anyone says they've read all of Augustine, they're lying to you because no one's read it all. We have way more of him than anyone else from the ancient world. Um, but what I, what I meant there by backing into the classics was Augustine, um, is the other early Christian thinkers were doing this, but Augustine does it at such a high, like beautiful dizzying level. He merges the biblical tradition and imagination of the old and new Testament together with the riches of pagan, what we call pagan now civilization or what he called pagan civilization in Greece and Rome, so the Homeric and Virgilian and certainly Cicero and certainly Plato or the Neoplatonists and some Aristotle, he just says, how do we square these two, you know, imaginative universes, the classical and the Christian, as we might call it. Um, and his synthesis uh, that is in his works goes on to like become the kind of blueprint um, or imaginative shape for a lot of what happens in Western culture, you know, for the thousand or so years after him. So it was in Augustine himself that I experienced um, like one of the first and maybe the most um, dynamic um, like clashes and interactions between the classical and the Christian frame of mind. Um, and that, that just set me on my, trajectory now. And so I, I get to read him um, now at a much later point in my life, 20 years later. It's amazing how coming back to books that are very deep for you, you realize how you've changed by reading them again at a later point in your life. And so that's been a special experience lately. That is just beautiful. I, I love that, that sense of, you know, Augustine being a mentor. Um, yeah words through his books. And, uh, you know, I've also felt that in reading some great writings um, as well. And, and he is such a profound writer, such a profound thinker. What a, what a beautiful mind to be mentored by. It's just mm. really, really, really good. So Augustine's name is well known. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the average person knows very much about what he was like, where, you know, where he was from. Can you just tell us a little bit about where he was born, um, you know, where he was born and raised and some of that background? Yeah, the background, it's um, easy to easy to lose sight historically where things fit together, unless you're a professional historian. I feel like my sense of the grasp of the world now with the internet, especially it all just kind of bleeds together, but he's living squarely at the end of the Roman empire, the later Roman empire, his lifespan is 354 AD to 430 AD. And so this is kind of just after Constantine for those who have that kind of anchored in their, their mind as 312 AD when Constantine converts to Christianity and the Roman empire is not Christian, but it's also not persecuting and killing Christians after Constantine. And so there's a kind of tug of war between pagan and Christian civilization and Augustine's born in to that um, and lives through the arrival of like really strong Christian emperors like Theodosius who do almost everything short of making Christianity the official uh, religion of the empire, although 
that's not quite right either. But Augustine's born on the fringe of the empire in North Africa. So if you think of, you know, you hear these names, you forget this is Africa. You have Alexandria and Egypt. You have Carthage and the Punic sort of uh, territory. And there's this whole ring of, of Northern Africa on the Mediterranean that is like robustly uh, part of the Roman Empire. It's the grain belt where Augustine is um, and a lot of the food uh, for the empire comes from there, but there's also like indigenous or local flavors and traditions that are alive. So Roman imperialism is a kind of pluralism, um, both like culturally, religiously, and linguistically. We can talk more about that in a minute, but Augustine is, um, he, he goes from North Africa and to teach in Italy, the center of the empire, the, the, the seat of the empire is actually Milan, not Rome, although he teaches in Rome and Milan. And he converts to Christianity, although he's got a Christian mom, Monica, famously doesn't come to faith until he's in his 30s on his own. And that changes the trajectory of his course from being a secular uh, professor, basically, to a Christian educator and then pastor and then bishop for the rest of his life and moving back to North Africa. And we can unpack all of that. But just a reminder, Augustine um, is super influential through his writing. So I literally, we have way more from him than any ancient author, more than Homer, Plato, or Aristotle. He wrote a hun- over 100 books, 250 letters, kind of like ancient letters were not just like an email, you know, it's like the letters of Paul in the New Testament, something it's like a treatise almost that would would have been expected to have a wider readership than just the named recipient. And then over a thousand sermons that we have, he cataloged his books and his letters uh, at the end of his life so that there'd be kind of posterity in his own library, but he didn't his sermons. And so we actually continue to find some of his sermons that are like copied through the ages and monasteries in Europe and He's an amazing preacher. He had a huge group of stenographers who sat in the front row and just copied his sermons. And so you get him um, kind of at his best in some ways in his sermons. And they're all translated into English now, which is a great gift of New City Press out of New York. Um, And he's just such a vibrant, alive thinker. And you often get him working on the same ideas from his books and his sermons, but coming at it in a more like approachable, accessible way. Um, Martin Luther said after Jesus and Paul, the apostle, no one did more than Augustine to shape Christianity, Western Christianity, certainly for Protestants and Catholics in the West. So, um, yeah, hugely influential, probably his spiritual autobiography, the confessions huge, you know, still read in many secular world literature, you know, our classics classes and, um, the city of God, which is not as easy or enjoyable to read as the, confessions, but it kind of sets this charter for how church and state relate and how to think about um, earthly politics, um, really shapes medieval um, Europe. And then on on the Trinity, another one of his beautiful, famous, influential books on Christian teaching, which is about, um, ostensibly it's about rhetoric, but it's also about how to read the Bible. And it goes on to really shape Christian education in the West. So he's, he's just hugely influential. Um, but his life, we know a lot about it, at least the first 33 years, because he writes the confessions and you get up to his conversion when he's about 33 or so. And we learn about his mom and his dad and his education and his conversion. And he kind of ends around his conversion. He wrote that when he was 43, 10 years after that, when he had just become bishop, which is like the super pastor for the area um, in North Africa of Hippo that he was in. and. Um, because of you never know if autobiographies are telling you the whole story or whatever. It's very selective. It also just is the first autobiography in the world. Like no one had thought to write the story of their own life before, which is kind of a crazy idea. Mm-hmm. But it's also defies all your expectations of a modern biography or autobiography. It's very much about the search for God and God's search for him and, and his own failures and follies. And it's, um, it is really in a kind of league of its own, but it's beautifully written and it's got the kind of self-awareness that we come to expect more from modern literature. You certainly, it stands out in the ancient world. Nice. Wow. It's just endlessly fascinating. It's awesome. All right. So what can you tell us about his cultural and ethnic background specifically? So you said you've laid out this 
kind of landscape of North Africa. It's part of the Roman Empire. Um, What would it have been like culturally um, growing up in North Africa as part of the Roman Empire? Um, Just wondering, you know, what that would have been like. Would his ethnic background have mattered at all in terms of opportunities he would have had? Yeah, yes. There... um... There's a lot to dig into. I'll talk about his context in particular and his mom and then more broadly, Africa, North Africa. Um, Yeah, so he's in Numidia, um, Tagast. So the biggest city nearby would be Carthage, the Punic um, cultural area. It's today related. The kind of local uh, indigenous culture would be related to modern Berbers in in North Africa. And that would have been his mom's um, sort of like heritage, ethnic inheritance and Monica. And so, you know, a darker skin tone, um, a di- I, we don't know, you know, looking back at the ancient world, but makes total sense that there's got to be continuity between the cultures uh, then and now. And there are uh, linguistically and, and genetically. So his dad is squarely like an Italian Roman who ends up in North Africa. So he had a kind of hybrid experience and identity. He was in the Latin speaking world of the Roman Empire. So it wasn't as if he was in some totally other um, linguistic culture. But I do think his experience of Latin was dialectic of Latin. I don't know if it was like a patois or what was going on with Latin there, but you get the sense that his exposure to um, Christianity through his mom and even to the Bible um, was in a kind of Latin, which was like a very local flavor sort of for the masses uh, kind of expression of the scriptures and Christianity. He says it wasn't until he runs into a later translation of the Bible when he's up in Italy that he kind of can see the the elegance of the scriptures. And so he's living at the same time as Jerome and Jerome's off in Palestine or Israel, but Jerome famously translates the Bible, uh, the Latin Vulgate translation in the middle of Augustine's life around 400. And so Augustine gets exposed to like a much more elegant, scholarly, elevated um, um, translation of the Bible because Augustine didn't read Hebrew didn't really read Greek. We can talk about that uh, in a minute. But um, what was life like for him? I think the Christianity, as he describes it in his boyhood, and then as he comes back to it um, in his adulthood um, as a part of the church, was it had like, I don't know if syncretistic is the right word. That might be too strong, but a contextual flavor of um, the landscape of the Numidian sort of like pre-Christian religious um, sort of cultural ideals, paganism. So this isn't Roman high, you know, Greek mythology paganism. This has been Numidian, um, very local um, religious rituals. So you get him kind of in his adulthood writing and worrying about the religious practices of um, remembering the dead and having kind of drunken festivals in graveyards. And the question is like, where did that tradition come from? You don't find it in other parts of the church. And it's like, maybe it was a carryover, something you might find now in ancestor worship and, you know, missionary context in East, East Asia or something. But you get that, you get other um, kind of local uh, flavors that come through in his own experience of Christianity and his mom's Christianity. So I think for him, so his dad's a Roman, he's part of the town council, but in a small town on the fringe of the empire, that's not a lot of power or standing. And so his mom has clung to, she's been converted to Catholic Christianity, Christianity, and she wants that for him. But like his dad, they also want him to get a liberal arts education because that's your way in the world. Like you've got a grammar, logic and rhetoric. Like that's how you get going, you know, like pre-internet, pre-YouTube, you gotta know how to think and to speak and to write and to deliberate about the common good in the town. And, you know, if you can get the quadrivium and quantitative measurement and all that, all the better too. But that was his way of advancing but he was clearly so smart. He went from being educated to being a teacher kind of like seamlessly, but you get moments of his own experience um, in education that I find fascinating where his parents like run out of money. So they send him to the town over um, to, to get his educated Madura at one point. And Madura is where 
Yeah, you have a you you just have a different sort of like flavor in Madura where he's being educated, but they have to pull him out of school because they run out of funds for a while. And this school at this time is like you find a tutor and the tutor takes on a number of students. It's not like public K-12 education in the States or whatever. And but that that's humiliating to him. And he feels the expectations of his parents, I think, on his shoulders. All of this comes through in the confessions. Um, and he doesn't really enjoy study very much. So, and then he doesn't really enjoy teaching either. Uh, so we can talk more about that. It's kind of interesting. Uh, but he's clearly so smart. He ends up in that world. But I think he, I can't tell how much of his like mixed ethnic inheritance would have added uh, to a sense of estrangement as he went to Italy ultimately. So he didn't go to Italy to be educated, but to teach, he went to Rome and Milan. You don't really get that sense. If you get any anxiety from him, it's a class anxiety that he's on the outside of the empire. He comes from a family of like modest, modest means just enough to kind of get you going on your education. And um, in Italy, he has the brush against the real aristocratic power that is running the empire. You know, these senators were parts of families that were landed and propertyed and wealth and, uh, you know, yeah, wealth and power and education often are totally intertwined. And so Augustine sort of comes to the very belly of the beast when he gets to Italy um, right before his conversion. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, I, I could just ask a thousand more questions for every question, but we, we have so much to do to look through. So um, I have the impression that many people don't really consider that he was North African. You know, I mean, his name is everywhere. Um, but does it make a difference for us to know this, that he was North African? Does that make a difference at all? I mean, or is it just kind of all the Roman Empire? I think it does make a difference. I mean, it it takes, especially given his return to the North African landscape and the kind of Christianity and culture of the soil that um, he came from, like, it just feels very different, ultimately, uh, theologically and spiritually than the stuff coming out of Milan. So Ambrose in Milan is a big influence on him. And you can almost feel Augustine in a very, like, tight, like high culture rhetorical mode as he comes back to North Africa after his, um, after his conversion in his thirties. And then he's uh, he starts to like an educational commune. So imagine it would be like right now, if you left your perch, you know, at the top of the Ivy league state schools and want to start your own alternative college in the Hills with a small, like, you know, community of intentional living and learning and reading the classics. Like that's what he intended to do in North Africa. He left to start what would have been the first like Christian liberal arts college. Um, but he ends up being like forcibly ordained a pastor and his life just kind of takes a different direction. My argument is that he never gives up the Christian liberal arts sort of like vision it's it appears in his writings but it's worked out differently because he's doing the work of a pastor and ultimately a bishop so church concerns take over purely like edu educational or intellectual concerns but i think um when he gets home and he's more involved in the kind of life of the north african church he moves into a different rhetorical mode it's much more like humorous and playful and accessible and like referring to very local like customs and things. And so I think he is very much shaped by North Africa. The question is like, how different was North Africa from just what we think of as Roman empire? When you hear nothing sounds more like Western Civ dead white guy than the Roman empire. Right. But if you actually historically, culturally, materially look at the Roman empire, look at its, its breadth and expanse, you'll recognize that it was, um, somehow, you know, in an uneasy way, absorbing and interacting with all these other cultural traditions that, that existed, um, that Greece. So then you're just, now we're just kicking it back to the, the Hellenistic age because Greece had already been to North Africa and Alexandria is certainly the greatest center of learning in the world and the precursor to the university in Egypt. And then if you go back behind Greece, where do you go? You're going to go back to Babylon. Maybe you go back to Egypt. I mean, so you're just, you're running into this like irony of the kind of Western civ monolithic European white mind thing. And that is, it's just not that simple. If you actually look at these histories 
And so I think Augustine bears the flavor and the unique perspective of African early Christian thought, which was alive and well um, in Alexandria and Carthage. You have Tertullian in Carthage and Augustine's super influenced by Tertullian and then Cyprian in Carthage. You have Origen in Alexandria, who's even shaped by a Jewish kind of Greek North African tradition, the Philo of Alexandria and others. And um, there's a cool book uh, that I actually was just starting to read called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind uh, by Thomas Oden. And he does um, much more than just Augustine in this book, Um, came out with IVP books a while ago, but he just traces a lot of these cultural um, filaments of how there were like vibrant intellectual traditions in the different pockets in North Africa that went on to shape early Christian theology and practice, make their way to Italy, make their way to Europe. And the story goes, but then he does the other historical retrospective of how is that, um, how did not only Africa shape the Christian mind, but how did that like rich, um, vibrant, uh, explosion of Christian thought in the first centuries, um, AD then go on to shape African Christianity as we know it now in North and Sub-Saharan Africa. And so it's kind of an ambitious project. I don't know how to evaluate everything in it, but it's just a good reminder that um, there's nothing simplistically uh, white and European about the classics, uh, and especially someone like Augustine. Now, the inheritance, the way authors like Augustine and the things he wrote went on to shape and be used by a monolithic, you know, dominant culture um, in Europe or America, you should, we should look at those things, trace the inheritance of those ideas, but it just doesn't do anybody any favors to be uh, dismissive about the classics um, without paying attention to the the context, the soil, the blood, you know, that they came out of. And yeah, I, I would say there needs to be more made of Augustine's kind of Numidian inheritance through his mom and how that's not a, it's just not an easily classifiable dead white guy um, sort of perspective. Excellent. Excellent. So what was Augustine? <clears throat> early education like? So he seemed to have very definite opinions, for example, on the study of Latin and Greek and their respective literatures. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah. Yeah. So he, I mean, Latin is his language. It's his English. So he's um, speaking it, but he also has, you know, the the intellectual mastery of it through grammar and logic and then rhetoric and how to use it um, and to use it for political purposes in particular. Um, but Greek, Greek would be um, like the ed- the language of education, the elite, you know, to it's still it's not spoken from what I understand, but it's like alive in terms of learning. So maybe think like in the early modern period, it'd be Latin in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, where it's like, if you're going to learn, you know, you're going to learn Latin because there's not amazing translations on Amazon books for $7.99 that you can get. So, um, yeah, so that, but it's interesting though, he's resistant to learning Greek. Um, He says he doesn't want to do it. We don't, I can't imagine he wouldn't have been good at it. It's hard to imagine given how just like smart, you know, he seems in reading his stuff, but he, I think it also just speaks to his love of, of language, of vernacular, of communication. You know, he's not a, he's not a nerd ultimately. I don't think, (laughs) I don't think I obviously he's bookish, you know, he's writing these books, he reads, but he's got a really strong sense of the power of ideas and what you can do with them in the world. He's a leader. Um, And so I think he, he senses like, I want to learn, but I want to do something with this, you know? And so I don't know, that might've been part of it, but he doesn't like learning from these tutors. He says that they, I mean, this is probably a pretty harsh world. So roll back the script to like a mean prep, you know, school early 20th century where you're going to get your knuckles wrapped, you know, or something like that. So he talks about being punished and it's a very unhappy context. You can imagine to learn, you know, thank God my own kids classical Christian school doesn't use knuckle wrapping anymore. We, some things we can be thankful for, but I will say more broadly, the way he reports his education um, 
is not just about like the meanness of the tutors, but it's also about the recalcitrance of human nature to learning. So we are, we're, we're, we're paradoxes, we're enigmas unto ourselves, as he says. And in the case of learning, we desire to know and to learn, like Aristotle says in the metaphysics, all human beings by nature desire to know. Um, but we also kind of don't want to learn at the same time, or we don't want anyone to tell us how to learn. You know, we don't like the repetition, the memorization. And Augustine's kind of big metaphysical picture of human nature is, says something to the effect of after Adam and Eve, the original kind of parents uh, fall away from God and disobedience, the human soul has actually contracted in a way that makes it more difficult to learn. So the, the mind and the heart are clouded by a kind of ignorance or darkness that makes it hard to remember things, hard to explain things, hard to learn. And it, it's, it is interesting, you know, you read Augustine on like memory and ignorance and you try to remember like pre-98 when you started surfing the internet for your information you know and it's like you remember those days like when someone wanted to know you know what ephesians 2 8 said or what that line in virgil said like you either knew it or you didn't know it you know and if you didn't know it you were hoping someone in the room you could ask but now we're just so used to googling everything and um augustine sees that that challenge of learning actually as being part of the curse um, that humans have to bear as, as divine justice, you know, it's a hard thing to fully wrap your head around, but I, I find that actually to be really true in my work as an educator and certainly in helping educate my kids is this tension between the joyful love of learning um, and then just like um, the the painful part of learning, the carrot and the stick, you know, the graded part of the learning, you know, the incentivize yourself with gummy bears to get it done part of learning. You know, it's like, there's this, he speaks to that tension and in his experience as a kid, um, it's not a super happy experience. Yeah. I don't think he learns about the love of learning until later in his life. The other thing I would say about Greek and Latin literature is, he picks up on in his confessions. I don't think he's thinking this as he's a kid. It's him reflecting on it, that the irony of classical literature is um, the moral formation that it offers to the young. So in his world, you would have had to have learned Homer and Virgil, you know, so that's still probably true in most classics departments around the West now. Um, but Augustine is, keen to ask these questions, not just like what's interesting or what facts can you memorize or what's historical, what's not, but what formation of the heart is happening through an understanding of these characters and these narratives and identifying with them. And, and he put, he points out that it's kind of ironic that young, um, young people are learning the stories of the gods, say in Homer, who are just like ridiculously like immoral, you know, sort of uh, painful characters. Maybe it's a kind of like a negative moral formation where you learn what not to do by looking at the gods, but that's not how it's presented to him. And so he, he does sort of like ask the question of the classics seem like there's some good stuff there. Seems like there's not some good stuff there. So it's not just like a, a univocal praise of classical pagan learning. It's more this like, how do we discern? And then he presents the Bible as being this really like uh, center anchor point for authentic education where your, your heart and your mind can be formed toward the right things um, through a deeper immersion in those stories and in those images and in those truths. And so again, that's, we're starting to pick up on this tension between pagan and Christian um, learning. And so I think he sees hope and hopefulness looking back that if you've got the right content um, in the education itself, maybe largely scripture, but scripture being read with and against classical um, literature, then you might be able to get the proper vision of formation um, and what you're even aiming for uh, in the work of education that would make it a more, um, not easy, but enjoyable in the deep sense, like um, positive and oriented toward um, the good for human beings. Mm. 
So help us to travel with Augustine from Numidia to Rome and Milan. You know, what would he have encountered? How would his life have been different? What were some of the influences on him in these places? He sails uh, from home in North Africa and his mom's trying to go with them. So this is after his education. He's a great tutor um, and he gets a job in Rome. And so he wants to go up. That's like, you know, you're getting closer to the center of the world, New York City. And he he sails and his mom wants to go with him, but he doesn't want his mom to go. So he gets on the early ship and like leaves her behind, which is <laughs> it's kind of a weird, it's a weird part of the confessions. But you know, his mom is clearly a strong uh, mama. He's not a Christian at this point. And he himself has been exposed to this religious cult that was really popular, I guess, in, in Numidia, Manichaeanism. And Manichaeanism is like, it's not Gnosticism, if you know that, but it's got similar sort of like vibes, like the world is caught between evil and good, darkness and light. A lot of it runs on physical versus immaterial lines. The battle is in you. You need to purify yourself, purge yourself, asceticism. And um, it's very secretive and cultic. It's got a bit of a Scientology sort of vibe, but it's also like it's for the next step up. It's not just the general, it's not the working poor and the the slaves. It's not just the general population, the town council. It's like you're illuminated. You know, the Illuminati is is uh, what they called their kind of spiritual elect. Um, so that's that's also part of him making his way in the world. And so he goes kind of through connections to Rome to teach. He's part of the Manichaeans there. Uh, Rome is not where the empire, like the capital is. It's in Milan North, um, but it is still the cultural heartbeat, you know, and, and Augustine feels that there. But his students are terrible. He said they're not only... Um, not good at studying and paying attention, but they won't pay their tutors fees on time. And so he's always harping about that, which I think is funny, but he comes to into the acquaintance of the prefect of Rome, like the mayor of Rome, Symmachus, who gets him this bigger position because he senses Augustine's talents um, to go up to Milan. And uh, he's like the imperial professor of rhetoric. It'd be like teaching, government or communication and government at the Harvard, you know, Kennedy school or something. He's 30 years old and he's kind of made it in a lot of ways. Um, but Milan up North has a different, um, I think spiritual culture. So there's two things going on. One is, um, Neoplatonism. So if that rings a bell for anybody, so it's not Plato, but it's like Plato's inheritors in the Roman empire, Plotinus and Porphyry. And they kind of take Plato's big ideas about the heavenly forms and the world as a kind of shadow and how to, you know, pursue the truth and the, the true and the good and the beautiful. And they make it popular in some ways and very mystical and very spiritual. He runs into Neoplatonism, which is an alternative to his kind of Manichaean cultic religion, um, but popular among the kind of like educated elite in Rome. But he also runs into a kind of Christianity that he has not been exposed to before. And that's largely through Ambrose of Milan, who's the bishop. And he goes to hear Ambrose preach. And he's just like, Ambrose is someone who's so titanically brilliant. Like he knows Neoplatonism, but he knows how to like fit that into a Christian view of the world and also what parts of it are very different from a Christian understanding. And remember in the, in the ancient Roman world, even the later Roman empire, life is irreducibly religious, political life, philosophical life. So you would have thought that you needed to offer incense to the emperor as a reverent sort of like recognition of his earthly and his heavenly power. Neoplatonists still would have participated in offering sacrifices on altars, either in private cultic celebration or in public kind of imperial religious celebration as a sign of the need, the soul's need for purgation and sort of like um, mm-hmm. covering and so there's a, there's a lot of like alive religious energy that is not Christian and that Augustine is sensing, you know, is at odds with his Manichaeanism. Um, but he sheds his Manichaeanism through his 
his understanding of Platonism, actually. So he moves into academic skepticism, which is a form of Platonism, and then into Neoplatonism. And he sees like a more sober, real pursuit of the truth there uh, than he's gotten in Manichaeanism. And then he finds in Ambrose someone who's like, oh, that, that's great. And that can take you pretty far, but not as far as the prophet Isaiah or the son of God. And so, I mean, for him, that's just really, he needed an Ambrose in his life to be like, wow, okay. This is not, again, this is not the new media and local Christianity of my mom, you know, and so I think that's the exposure. So he decides that Easter, um, this is all book eight, uh, book nine of the Confessions. It's so beautiful. You should just read it. But he gets baptized uh, that Easter. But he has, um, right before his baptism, he reports this in Confessions, um, just the kind of like hound of heaven experience that God has been after him. And he's in a garden with his best buddy, Olypius, who also came from North Africa, who's super smart, is a teacher and is on his way in the world as well. And he says, someone's given him the letters of Paul. So if you think in the ancient world, in it's not the scroll world of papyri, but it's the codices world, the codex. And you could never have the Bible in one book, you know, it's just too many pages, but you could have like the letters of Paul. And so someone's given him the letters of Paul. He cracks it open um, to Romans 13 in a kind of active Bible bingo providence and reads, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put away the flesh. And it says that his, his heart was uh, struck, convicted, um, and converted inwardly and it puts him at rest. And it's kind of the bookend of that first line or the, from the first paragraph, the human heart is restless until it finds rest in God. And so he feels that sense of, of rest in God and forgiveness, um, and welcome and conversion. And that's, uh, all in book nine, it's beautiful or book eight in the confessions. And after his conversion, he starts that little Christian liberal arts commune that I mentioned. He actually tries to do it up in the lake country outside of Milan and it doesn't work up there. And he goes back down to North Africa to try it um, back home and to Gast. It doesn't work there either. And then he enters into um, life and service of the church. Wow. So it sounds like he needed this kind of ultra intellectual entree or apology for Christianity. Is, is that kind of, would you summarize it that way? I think so. You know, I mean, it's like Ambrose was like a C.S. Lewis, you know, kind of figure for him, just someone who hmm. um, he couldn't easily outrun, you know, who was asking the questions at the same level and being intellectually honest and not shortcutting things. I, I also think, though, he's trying to highlight in that, especially in the conversion scene where he's weeping and he just kind of knocks on the door of scripture randomly and, and reads this passage and it, and it opens to him. He's trying to highlight and accentuate too that the journey of the mind toward God also it requires the stoop down of lowliness and humility. Um, so I think at the, I think he's trying to show you how it was like an intellectual culture, an intellectual mentor like Ambrose. And yet the real problems were ultimately not of the head, but of the heart. And it's, it's in that kind of paradoxical move of the incarnation, which is the central image in, in his conversion from book seven of the confessions where God himself, the great, the almighty, the powerful, the true, the good, and the beautiful becomes a lowly baby in Bethlehem and accessible to the, the human race, that that also is um, the movement of conversion. So it, it, you do want to be as like ruthlessly um, intellectual and honest and ask the hard questions, but no, at the climactic step, it's going to be a stoop of lowliness and humility um, that opens the heart. So, yeah. Mm. So he goes back to North Africa and he tries this kind of communal school again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what, what does he say very much about what goes wrong? And then also how does he, what <laughs> with this forcible ordination like how, how does all that come to happen? i know it's it's hard to even piece together because it feels very foreign from you know i think american christianity as i experience it but 
the school doesn't totally go wrong. So he's, he's trying to write a curriculum. We get the outline of a Christian liberal arts curriculum in his book on order. He starts into the curriculum and writes on music. One of the seven liberal arts. We have that. Um, he, we lose some of the other parts. We have bits of um, on dialectic or on logic. And I think on rhetoric turns into his own Christian teaching more or less. So he kind of abandons the curricular project when we get back to North Africa to, to gasp. But the commune is, um, I don't think it fails. I think it actually rebirths itself as his monastery that he creates with the church in Hippo when he's the bishop. So he, you forget, you know, hear all about Benedict, although Benedict is after Augustine and Augustine has started a monastery and he wrote a rule for the monks and the nuns. And there was a monastery and a convent borrowing a lot from again, North African Christianity and the desert fathers um, in the second, third century and desert mothers. Um, so Augustine, I think his forcible ordination just alters his approach from being more of a liberal arts educator to being a pastor Christianity is divided in North Africa between um, Catholic Christianity, which is really housed and centered out of Rome, although there's not a pope um, in the you know, fourth, fifth century when Augustine's alive, but there's a primacy centrality to Catholic Christianity coming out of Nicaea in the early fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. And um, there's a sect of Christianity in North Africa called the Donatists, and they see themselves as the real form of North African Christianity and the ones um, who are part of the remnant of those who didn't buckle at all during the imperial persecution um, under Diocletian. There's all of these persecutions and all this blood shed by the Roman Empire against Christians. And so each of these... Um, leaders in the Donatist movement said our lineage goes back to being people who are ordained by people who did not renounce their faith or mess up during the persecutions. We are like the pure church, the ones that have never betrayed our faith. And so there's actually a pretty big divide between Catholic Christians and Donatist um, Christians. And Augustine is squarely part of Catholic Christianity. Uh, his mom had been part of that. So it's not just that he went to Italy and came back a Catholic, but he very much is now as a representative of Milan and Ambrose and he's back. And so the Catholics, I think once they sensed any uh, ounce of his ability and capacity and who he was, they were like, yep, we need this person <laughs> in the church. And so they were having an ordination service. And it's like, it was one of those like scenes from a movie where it's like, everyone's kind of like, there's four people up there, you know, with robes getting ordained. And then they're panning around. Is there anyone else here we could ordain? And here's this guy in the back of the church. They're like, yes, him, the guy who's back from Italy with the education. Uh, so that was, that was that. And then quickly he becomes bishop kind of super overseer of that area and that also that actually didn't feel as forcible as just like a natural you know the position was opening and and he took it and he was clearly adept at it but when he was forcibly ordained a pastor he asked he said i will do it i don't know how much bargaining power he had but this is how he reports that he asked for a dispensation of time to immerse himself in the scriptures um, and wanted to know how to read the scriptures. And so that was his kind of um, bargaining chip. And so he he dives into learning how to read the Bible, I think both because he wants to be a good pastor, but I also think intellectually he's still trying to square himself up with um, how to read the Bible. The Bible is a very challenging book to read. I mean, uh, Manichaeanism premised itself just as one of its many uh, tenets as saying that the Bible, you don't want to be a Christian because there's two different gods in the Bible. There's like this mean Old Testament God, and then there's this New Testament thing going and don't get tangled up in that. And Augustine now knows enough to know it's one God. And this is the whole story of God. But I think he himself is still struggling. Like, how do you read some of the tougher, you know, parts of the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And I, the thing that stands out more than anything else to him is the Psalms. And so I would say the thing that is most influential on his moral, theological, philosophical imagination is the Psalms, where you can bring the whole range of human experience and emotion 
before God and the beauty of language. And I'm sure he had something like the Psalms memorized, you know, because to be an ancient intellectual was to have a massive memory. And he quotes the Psalms thousands of times in the confessions. And again, you remember as he's writing, he doesn't have books with him. Usually he's just writing and the, the illusions or the citations are from memory. In fact, he wrote most everything he wrote by dictation. So he's not writing. He's like speaking this out, which is another interesting part. So you've written very eloquently on Augustine and the implications of his life and thought for education and how we approach education today. And you have kind of thought about, you know, what are some of our own crises of education and how can Augustine speak to them? So I wonder if you could tell us some more about what moved you to write your book, Reading Augustine on Education, Formation, Citizenship, and the Lost Purpose of Learning. Part of it was just happenstance, I think. I had read a lot of Augustine, and then I got a job. My first job out of grad school was to start an honors program um, here at George Fox, and it was to be a great books honors program. And I, in the great books, you have some of the same kind of tensions and possibilities of a classical Christian education where you're trying to merge these two traditions. Um, Well, great books is actually, so he was merging two kind of traditions, classical and Christian, and then classical and Christian go on to cross fertilize and create all this interesting European, you know, medieval and modern literature. And I think to do great texts responsibly now is to have a generous sense of the canon and to be inclusive in the right ways, you know, to to move away from strictly canonical thinking to conversational thinker, thinking about our common humanity and yada, yada. So I just was thinking with Augustine about trying to get this honors program off the ground. And I found in my conversations with my students and with their families, them being, um, really torn between the desire for an authentic um, liberal arts education, faith-based liberal liberal arts education, great text education, where they can expand their humanity, sharpen the skills of mind and close reading and dialogue and discussion and think about the meaning of life, the big questions, all the stuff we love about college, but also just this sharp kind of career mindedness and cost consciousness about higher education. So this is post, you know, economic collapse, 2008. Um, Now it's even more so kind of coming out of COVID. And how do you square that, um, the kind of pure for its own sakeness of, of liberal education with the instrumental necessity of getting a livelihood and a means, you know, of, of living after you. Graduate. And so in Augustine, I was able to um, find someone to talk to about this tension and ask kind of like um, about the core purpose of a college and especially like a core curriculum experience. And I think from him, I kind of indirectly learned that there are um, there's multiple purposes for a college education and you have to keep them all in view or you'll lose track of what kind of formation you're offering your students and obviously college and k-12 even is has a fundamentally intellectual purpose you're trying to train the mind you're trying to get people to know something there's knowledge involved and that intellectual purpose is sometimes yoked to more of an economic career purpose. You want to know what to do, what to make. And then there's a higher spiritual or moral purpose. Like what kind of person are you becoming through your education and who or what am I supposed to worship in response to this amazing world, you know, that we're learning about, or who am I supposed to ask uh, help from in this world of injustice and evil and um, getting the intellectual, the economic, and the moral and spiritual purposes together, I think, was the, the, is the task of, of higher education, as I see Christian higher education. So Augustine was very helpful. I think I also was just able to read him differently, seeing him more as an educator by trying to become an educator myself and realize that he, part of what he's telling you in his confessions is about his own miseducation. Uh, he, he got an elite education, but it was a miseducation. It was more about, um, it was more about achievement, um, and appearance and recognition and social mobility and ladder climbing than it was about, 
um, becoming a true friend or um, a good human being or, you know, promoting beauty or caring um, for others. And so Augustine has this big idea in his writings generally about the moral life that it's about the proper ordering of the heart or the affections, what you care about. And um, I think that was the main thing I took away as I thought about my own students here is how can we be shaping their minds um, and giving them good things to do with their hands to make a, a living, um, but also shaping what they care about, helping them to, to form just affections, um, as, as Augustine likes to say. Mm. Yeah, and I, it's it's wonderful to see how Augustine continues to be a mentor to you. you know? So as you're becoming a believer, as you're embarking on this new um, yeah, yeah, that's career, true. It's really extraordinary, and I, I think it's just a you know kind of a, a good witness to the importance of of reading these authors, you know, of of really taking seriously um, wisdom from the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there's just so much that we kind of cut ourselves off from if we don't do that kind of reading and find these kinds of um, ancient mentors as well as our contemporary mentors. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed that book, um, the the book that you wrote on, on reading Augustine. And, and um, these are all questions that I think about quite a lot. And, you know, part of, of what you say there, which is what you've said here, is that the economic aspect of learning seems to have kind of taken over or colonized, you know, kind of the rest of the, the, the other areas or spheres of why we learn. And there are lots of people who talk about, you know, the kind of crisis in education and crisis in the humanities and so on. But something that's interesting to me is, you know, kind of these talk about Augustine and, and how he describes his miseducation is, you know, he really did chafe against certain aspects of his education. And he talks about how I didn't really want to learn, you know, but they kind of forced me into it. And yeah, it's probably good that they forced me, but then what, what were they making me learn anyway? And like, what was the whole point of this? And, you know, I think about my college students and, and you can sometimes tell from the body language and the, you know, <laughs> the, that there's a certain lack of engagement or, you know, and, and I'm here thinking, but these are really important, enduring issues. Like, how do I communicate this to my students? And so I wonder, you know, it, as I looked at Augustine's writing on being a student, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about my own students today, is I feel like, wow, this is awfully familiar. Um, so how much of what we're encountering today is really kind of just the perennial challenge of being a student and how much of it is particular to our own historical and social context. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a big, important question. I think I said a minute ago, his view of human nature, which can feel pretty grim, um, but also realistic at times, um, presents human beings as being riddled by this kind of like, um, cloudiness intellectually ignorantia he calls it and then also like a kind of like um unruliness of our of our inner will um what he calls difficultas like the will it's hard to like get yourself to write to like the right things and it's easy to do the wrong things and so he says that that actually has great consequence for for learning and the vice um so one step up from just like rabid ignorance and not wanting to learn at all is curiosity, which he's not a huge fan of curiosity. I don't think he thinks of it in the kind of virtue. Now it shows up on virtues, virtue list sometimes, but curiositas in his mind was a kind of vain um, pursuit of knowledge um, for, I guess if you say for its own sake, that's um, we like to use that as a positive thing, knowing things for their own sake, but in his mind, like, a vain building up of knowledge to outscore your opponents, your or your peers or your fellow scholars, or yeah. just the sense of just like trifling and for basically scrolling on your phone most of the time, you know, just this endless sort of like anything you want to know randomly right now, you know, I'm sure that's like not good for our souls in some ways. But he says above that is love of learning, amor studentium. So you can actually like cultivate the heart and the mind 
um, to want to learn and to learn for the right reasons, um, to learn because it's good to know the truth about reality and not lies and falsehoods, um, to learn because you want to do something good with the knowledge you've been given. It might make, you know, give sharpen your ability to go act in the world and make a difference and all those kind of like motivational changes that grow out of Amor Studentium. So, I think he he thinks these are just perennial problems, whether or not we've run into new problems with like digital learning or the decay of, you know, civil society in the family or who knows, you know, I'm sure we've every age is. I do know no age has ever tried the kind of wild democratic experiments of education that we have where it's like, let's give everybody a shake. You know, the ancient world was too aristocratic to even countenance that idea. And I think um, I think the challenge for me, so speaking just as a Christian, especially at a Quaker institution is, uh, I don't know about universal access and learning. Those, are, those would be massive political, technological challenges to get on. But I do, th- I do think Christians have an obligation um, to provide access to the riches of an authentic Christian liberal arts education, classical Christian education to those uh, for whom it might be out of reach or not part of their own kind of cultural or class traditions. And I think that's the joy of the gospel is to see a mix up of these kind of regimented, you know, sort of dividing lines, whether it's race or class or economic. And um, so, yeah, I think that that gives me kind of reason to want to be as like uh, to think as accessible, accessibly about classical Christian and Christian liberal arts education as possible. But I think what I said earlier too, human students are kind of caught between what we are by nature as image bearers of the divine. We want to know, we want to learn. I don't know how it, you have kids too. I have kids. It's so amazing. Just see how they want to know things. Um, and yet, there's like in all of us, a kind of inner potential, like rebellious disobedience of like, you don't want to be told how to know or what to know. And I think the grand kind of democratization of knowledge and the kind of like pirate information age of learning, you know, on your like curated YouTube channels feeds to that sense, you know, of individual choice and freedom. And I think even what we're probably feeling more and more in higher ed, maybe not in the classical K-12 world, but is this sense of like, where, how far do you go in catering to the kind of individual will of the consumer, um, the student as consumer in terms of how they want to learn, what they want to learn and their own path versus the kind of like edges of like, this is what you will learn and this is what you will know. And this is what you will, you know, sort of like be put through to achieve, um, this kind of certification. So I, I think that that's, that's a strange kind of moment that we're in, but the big trouble with human nature is we probably do want to learn, but we want to do it my way. Um, and we're always struggling uh, against inattention rather than attention. We're always working to delay our desire for gratification and distraction. I mean, I just think those are just the perennial challenges, you know? Mm. So one final question, I'm wondering what advice would you give for a young person who's in high school, who's thinking about college, maybe researching them, um, and, may, and also what advice would you give to their parents as they're trying to think about this, just in light of you know the reflections that you've had on higher education, in light of the lessons that we get from Augustine, what yeah. kind of advice would you want to leave those students and their parents with? People always have to be aware of, um, you know, the costs and the risks of higher education. I, I think it's a luxury to think it's just like a a right of American, you know, initiation into adulthood, just to go to college because everyone goes to college. I think you really need to stand back and ask the bigger why questions. Why, you know, go to college at all? Why go to this college rather than that college? I think that there's nothing wrong with um, the university higher education kind of shift toward um, career preparation and livelihood and people being aware that they need to make a living if for no other reason than to pay back the loans that they got from going to your college. But I just think that the past couple of years in COVID 
have reminded me that the really great intractable um, problems, questions of human life are not solved purely through material, technical um, means. So the question really becomes, what do you do with a life if you can save it from sickness or disease or what, how do you order a society if you can build and defend one long enough? How, what do you put on the internet if you can build a big forum of, you know, a digital forum of, of free speech? These questions of, uh, they're not the questions of the means of living, they're the questions of the meaning of life. And I think that it's important to find a place where you're going to get both of those things. Um, and for me, as a Christian educator, I think that it's really important to at least ask the question, um, as you approach the big questions, um, where, what are human beings? Where do we come from? Where did the world come from? What's wrong with the world? How do you heal the world? What's your role in healing the world? Um, Christians have very distinct answers to those questions. And so I think we want to be generous and be in dialogue with humankind as we do that. And that's the beauty of the generosity of classical Christian education and thinking about diverse voices in the contemporary moment. Um, but it also is to say um, that really like tender, amazing period where you launch out of one world into the next and are initiated into adulthood through college or university, you're going to be forming um, some of your own judgments and opinions about those big questions and who you are and to, to see um, the way in which a Christian view of reality uh, shapes the answers you give to those questions, not just intellectually, but how you're going to live out your life and the choices you make. It's important to think about that as you think about schools. Now, I know for a fact, you know, some great public universities like your own have amazing Christian houses of study and different ways in which students can have that kind of forming of their Christian imagination and view of the world. There's also Christian liberal arts colleges like my own that do it in a different way. But I think it's important to, to take those, take the means of living and the meaning of life seriously uh, as you think about where you're going and think about what kind of worldview is going to be formed during your time there. Thank you so much, Dr. Claire. It's been such a privilege and um, well, I will have to reserve all of my other questions on Augustine for another time, but this has been a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.